Good morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, the letter of Paul to Titus. Uh, we are finishing up this letter this week, and in a couple of weeks, we'll look at the next one, which is Philemon, in the series called Postcards to, to, uh, from Paul. Listen to God's holy and inspired word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. You join me in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of looking into your word this morning. I pray, Lord God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would illumine to us the text of Scripture, that you would shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. Show us Christ. And Lord, grow us to be increasingly like Him. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastoral ministry is... Hard. It's hard work, not easy. 
You know, I had the privilege uh, this past week of uh, speaking to a room uh, full of pastors. There were uh, several of them, about maybe 40 to 45, uh, some from this uh, country, working in this country, others from different parts of the world. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you're preaching the word and you say certain things, you get a sense that everybody resonates with what you just said. And uh, in the middle of my sermon, I said, pastoral brothers, pastoral ministry is hard. And immediately around the room, I see heads nodding. And there's kind of this pin drop silence because they feel it. You know, uh, Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, he says, pastoral ministry is like trying to build something with bananas instead of blocks. It's always slipping and sliding and falling. You, you feel like you've got things kind of settled and firm in one area and you think, oh, everything's looking nice. And then another part of it where you thought everything was fine begins to tumble and fall and then you're running over there to fix that. Just when you think things are stable and getting settled, something else arises and shakes everything up. And Titus was in the middle of the hard work of pastoral ministry in this island called Crete. Uh, as I've mentioned when we started the series, he was a Gentile believer. He was uh, a convert through Paul's ministry. Paul had left him at Crete in this island in the middle of a godless culture. And he was to do the work of pastoral ministry, bringing order to the churches, protecting gospel doctrine, promoting godly living. And Pastor Titus, this brother pastor, was facing opposition. He was constantly dealing with false teachers and imposters, with difficult people in a difficult context, with churches that were disordered and struggling. And so Paul has written this letter, Paul wrote this letter to Titus to remind him of how the church should look, how God's people should live. And he reminds him of what Titus should preach to help them live that way. Titus must preach the gospel of God's grace. We've seen again and again this link in the letter to Titus between grace and good works. Gospel doctrine is inseparably linked to godly living. God's grace in the gospel leads to good works in our lives. In fact, this theme of God's grace leading to good works, you'll see again and again in our chapter today, and it began with the very end of chapter 2 last week. Look uh, there at chapter 2 and verse 14. Uh, he speaks of our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In chapter 3 and verse 1, he says that we must be ready for every good work. Chapter 3, verse 8, he says the saying is trustworthy. Titus, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And again in verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Are you seeing a theme and pattern there? 
The, the main idea that Paul is getting at is this, is that God saves us by His grace so that we might be devoted to good works. Uh, as many people have illustrated, God's grace in the gospel, faith that we have in God, is the root and good works are the inevitable, or must be the inevitable, fruit of our faith and of God's grace at work in our lives. And so as we look at Paul's closing instructions to Titus today, brothers and sisters, my prayer is that we would be filled with the rich hope of the gospel of God's grace so that we might be careful to devote ourselves to doing, say it with me, good works. Paul gives Titus uh, three pastoral responsibilities uh, to ensure that God's people are focused on the gospel and careful to do good works. So you could say this passage provides three responsibilities for pastors everywhere. They're not the only responsibilities that pastors have, but they are pretty important and central to our work. By pastors fulfilling these responsibilities, that's how God's people grow in the grace of the gospel and learn to devote themselves to good works. Three responsibilities for pastors. First is that we are to remind you how to behave. Pastors must remind God's people of how to behave. Look at verses 1 and 2. Remind them, Paul says. Now this is Paul speaking to Titus, the pastor. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So last week in chapter 2, that excellent sermon from Pastor JP, we saw what godly living looks like in the home and in the church, in our relationships at home and at church. This week, Paul focuses more on how we ought to live in the world and in broader society. He tells us what Christian living, what good works in a Christian's life looks like in our dealings with people in society, with those outside the church. And he begins by saying, Titus, remind them. Remind them. We need to be reminded of these things. Um, some people kind of, you know, I don't know if it's a compliment or they, they were kind to me, but they say, Pastor Aubrey, you have a good memory. And I say, oh, you, you don't know, you know what it's like in my home. All right. I'm a pretty forgetful guy. Uh, almost every day there's, there's this kind of pattern repeated, 365 days a year, where I'm about to leave and I'm going, where's my wallet? Where's my wallet? Looking around. Where are my keys? Where are my glasses? Where's my phone? In fact, uh, my uh, little daughter Petra, uh, you know, one of the first videos we have of her speaking, she was two years old, and she's walking down the hall and saying, where's my wallet? <laughs> so she sees daddy say that every, and so I need these constant reminders, right? Don't forget your wallet. Your wallet was over there, you put it over there last night. I need these constant reminders because of my proclivity to forget. As I think about many, many things and I'm lost in my own world, I forget the basics. And friends, that's in some ways a picture of the Christian life. We 
have this proclivity to forget. The, the Christians in the church in Crete were forgetting. They, they faced this constant pressure from the culture around them. They are constantly facing people coming into the church, trying to lead them astray. They were forgetting how to live. They needed reminders. And this was Titus's pastoral responsibility. And this is our responsibility as pastors to remind you as the various anxieties and pressures of life and the world around you weigh in on you. We are here to remind you how you ought to behave. And Paul gives him uh, some particular areas to remind the congregation. Paul tells Titus. And there are two here in verses 1 and 2. He reminds them of how they are to behave with regard to submission and how they are to behave with regard to their speech. You see, in the culture of Crete, rebelliousness and speaking evil of others was normal. It's what everybody did. But Titus was to remind the Christians in the churches that they were to be different from the world around them. First, in regard to their submission. Did you see that in verse 1? Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be every, ready for every good work. They were living in a pagan society. Think about that. They were living in a pagan society, a society that opposed Christian beliefs and values, a society that often rose up against Christians and persecuted them, a society ruled by evil rulers, and Paul tells Titus, remind the people to submit to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, not rebellious. Now, I want to be clear and clarify something here. This is important. When the ruling powers, rulers and authorities, command us to do something that conflicts with the clear commands of God, then we have a higher authority, that is the Lord. We never do things that would lead us to act in disobedience to God's word. In fact, Paul's own martyrdom is a testament to that. He was martyred because he refused to obey the order to worship the emperor, and he preserved his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all through history, we see Christians who have given up their lives because they refused to conflict with God's word, choosing to obey God rather than men. However, that's not very common. For the most part, rulers and authorities are put in place by God himself to punish wrong and to create a society that where right and wrong is properly recognized and we are called to therefore follow the law, to live in submission to be obedient. As one pastor says, this means that we conduct ourselves respectfully as it relates to the government. I mean, think of this particularly here. We are all guests in this country. We ought to conduct ourselves with respect. It means that in every area of life, we are submissive to the ruling authorities. We conduct our business according to the laws that are put in place governing commerce. This one is going to be hard. It, it, you, it means that you have to drive according to the traffic laws. Not just saying it's okay, I'll pay the fine later. It means that we follow regulations 
not wherever God has placed us. It means that we pay taxes according to the laws of city, state, nation. For many of you in your home country, you are to be faithful taxpayers. As one pastor says, for people to subject themselves to civil authority according to scripture will require examination and correction of virtually every area of daily life. You know, I was deeply convicted uh, by my own failure in this regard this week as I was studying the text. A uh, couple of days ago, so my wife and I belong to a different, our citizenship belongs to a different country than my daughters. Uh, and my daughters asked me, hey, Daddy, can you play again for us that video? And this is of a certain politician in their home country who shall remain unnamed. It, it was a YouTube video making a joke about this politician, basically. And, uh, you know, we've joked about that particular politician. We've laughed about it, and they wanted to watch this video again. And, uh, you know, I had studied this text, and I said to the girls, you know what, no, we actually shouldn't do that. He's a leader of that nation, of your home country, appointed and put in place by God. And God's word commands us to be respectful. Now, the reason they're asking me to play that YouTube video is obviously because I played it for them, for them before and made jokes about this before. And I was convicted that's dishonoring of a leader whom God has put in place. It might, you might have various leaders in your home country, and you might look at the way that they lead and look at their lives and find it very revolting. You might feel really discouraged. But God has commanded us to respect our rulers and authorities. Just as we respect the king in this country, even in your home country, even if it's the party that you, know, you oppose and that you don't want in power, even if it's some kind of a tyrant or dictator, God's word stands. He's been put in place or she's been put in place by the sovereign Lord to accomplish his purposes. And we ought not to speak dishonorably of our rulers. We ought to pray for our rulers. You know, I, I think about the witness of a dear friend of mine, and actually was the brother who ended up taking me to church. He was a Christian. I was not several years ago. I was a wild and rebellious and foolish guy. And uh, I remember on uh, New Year's Eve, uh, we were driving back. And we had, I think we had performed at a rock concert. And uh, he was a Christian. I was not. And, you know, we were stopped by a traffic policeman and the traffic policeman uh, wanted to check our breath to make sure we hadn't been drinking. Uh, and in India at the time, the way they did that was they asked you to blow in their face. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I was just such a rebellious, seditious, evil man. I said, you know what I want to do one day? We got away from them. And, uh, you know, I was speaking to this other Christian guy who was driving the vehicle. And I said, you want to do one day to them? I want to eat kind of like, you know, raw eggs and, and, and then garlic and, and then come and blow in their face one night. And, uh, you know, when he just turned to me and said, ah, you know, their job is pretty tough. Imagine how much uh, infection they're prone to being out there in the night. Imagine how difficult it is for them to s smell everybody's breath. I'm not joking, this is what he said, and, and we ought to respect them. They're caring for us, they're trying to protect us. And I was 
you know, just stabbed in that moment. I was not a Christian yet. But I still remember this incident over 20 years ago. Because that brother's witness and his life, I could point to many things in his life, but that was one thing I can point to. That's what eventually brought me with him to church. But I heard the gospel and came to faith in Christ. His humility, respect, and submissiveness to the authorities. So how about you, dear friends? What's your posture like towards governing authorities? Whether in this country or elsewhere, like your authorities back home. Is your posture marked by submissiveness, by obedience, a readiness to do good works for the betterment of society? Do you pray for rulers and authorities? Is this part of your prayer life? Uh, think of what Paul commands us in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. He tells us to pray for rulers and authorities, for kings and all in power, so that we might be able to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Do you pray for the rulers of this nation? Or is your posture marked by constant dissent, constant mocking? Do you find ways to undermine the rule of law just because you think this is unjust or disagreeable? I'm going to find ways to subvert it. Well, this morning, here's your reminder from God's word of your responsibility towards your rulers and authorities. We are to be submissive. Titus must not only remind the believers of their duty in submission to the state, but he must also remind them of their responsibility, their duty with regard to speech. How we speak. What comes out of our mouths. Jesus said it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And notice what Paul commands here in verse 2. He says, speak evil of no one. Remind them to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So he gives us there in that verse two negatives to avoid and two positives to pursue. Do you see that? Two negatives. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling. So the first negative, don't slander. Speak evil of no one. Friends, that's what we call a blanket prohibition. That means it is complete and total, covering every possible case and scenario with no caveats. Who are you allowed to slander? No one. When is it okay to slander somebody? Never. All our speech concerning others must be truthful and thoughtful. Never cursing, never backbiting or bad-mouthing, never profane, and never false. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That's the first negative. Second negative, don't quarrel. Don't quarrel means you avoid biting words and speech that results in fights. It begins in our own homes and must spread out into the way we deal with all people in society. Whether you're bargaining with the storekeeper or talking to the server at a restaurant or dealing with your co-workers at work or dealing with customers or employees, we must speak in such a manner all our speech 
must diffuse conflict and avoid quarrels. Those are the two negatives. Notice the two positives. He says, remind them to be gentle. To be gentle. This means that we must be meek and measured in our words, in our tone. It means that we ought to be considerate of how our words affect others. Now this, I confess, is something that I struggle with, that I'm praying for, that I'm seeking in the grace of God to grow in in my own life. Uh, I, I can often be sharp and direct with my words. No, the words of, of a Christian should be gentle and measured. And to be courteous, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. This means that you're gracious in the way that you speak and kind. You're considerate of others. You're not, as one person said, you're not overly impressed. The word literally means that you're not someone who's overly impressed by your own sense of self-importance. You know, sometimes how that takes over a conversation, takes over our dealings, kind of impressed with your own self-importance and you put yourself forward, put your ideas forward, put your opinions forward, and nobody else even gets the light of day. That's not how we ought to be. So dear friends, again, question, heart surgery. How is it going when it comes to your tongue? Are you someone who raises the temperature in conversations or someone who cools things down? How's it going at home? Begins at home in how we talk to our spouses and our family, our children. Are you marked by self-control in how you talk about others? Are your words truthful and thoughtful? Do you give off a pride vibe, lacking consideration for others, always putting your own thoughts and opinions forward? How do you deal with the delivery guy when he's late? And he's called you four times. Again and again, he called you on the phone. I already told you where it is. 40 minutes late, boss. Does the delivery guy see a difference between your interactions with him as a Christian and the interactions that he has with everybody else in society? Think of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. He says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. That is sobering. And so, once again, here's your reminder from God's word. As Titus was charged by Paul to remind the people how to behave, I, as your pastor, one of your pastors, want to remind you in submission and in speech, to live according to the gospel and to be known for your good works. But why must we live in that way? Why do we treat people in this way? Why should we live in a manner that is submissive and gracious and considerate towards others? The answer, my friends, is because God has dealt so graciously with us. You know, just like we forget how we must live, we often also forget who we once were. We forget what God has done in our lives. We forget what we would be apart from Him. And then, you know, we, we can get this kind of arrogance 
and judgmentalism and pride and, and we look at the world around us and we think of how holy we are compared to them and we lose sight of the fact that we too were once among them. We too were once lost. And so instead of growing overconfident and proud, we ought to be most humble of all and treat others with humility. That's why Paul next charges Titus to help the people recall their salvation. If good works are the fruit, Paul takes us now deep to see the root, the deep, deep roots of what God has done for us in Christ. That's the second pastoral responsibility that we see in this text. Not only must we remind you of how to behave, we must also recall how we were saved. Recall how we were saved. Pastors ought to do this. We see that in verses 3 to 8. And in these verses, you get a glorious and concise summary of the gospel. One of the most beautiful summaries of the gospel in the New Testament. And it begins in verse 3 by telling us what we were, what we once were. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Friends, the gospel of salvation will make no sense if we don't understand our own condition in our sin. We cannot recall our salvation correctly if we don't remember what we were, all of us, apart from Christ. Do you see that in verse 3? He tells us seven deadly facts. Seven deadly facts about what we once were. They are oh so heavy. He says, we ourselves were once foolish. Foolish. This is not talking about your intelligence. No, it's a moral idea. It means that we were morally corrupted and senseless. That our lives were marked by a kind of behavior that was senseless, behaving senselessly with no thought of the consequences of our actions on ourselves or on those around us, calling right wrong and calling wrong right, living foolishly in this world. We were disobedient. We lived our lives, we came into this world in rebellion against God, we lived in rebellion against His commands, rebelling against all the authorities that God placed in our lives. We were led astray. That's another way of saying we were deceived. Our hearts were darkened. We were constantly wandering, going astray, just covered in darkness with no hint of light or knowledge of where we were headed. We were enslaved, slaves to our sin, unable to escape our own appetites, our desires, our lusts. Controlled, with no, controlled by our desires with no escape, living for pleasure and passion to our own destruction. We passed our days in malice and envy. Malice and envy were the way of our lives. Constantly living in bitterness, in jealousy of others, plotting evil against others for our own benefit or just out of a malicious heart. We were hated by others. The text there, I think, is better translated. Literally, we were despicable. We were hateful to others, to other people, but also to God. Our lives were hateful to God, 
for our evil deeds, our rebellion against him, hateful to those around us for the way that we lived. We were destined for God's wrath and for destruction. And we were hating one another, filled with hostility, with animosity, with grudges, always resentful, hateful towards those around us. What a damning description that is in just one verse. As I read this verse this week, it brought back many memories of my life, of how 20 years ago this perfectly described me. Foolish, disobedient, deceived. How enslaved I was to lust and the uncontrolled desires for my own pleasure at the expense of others. How malicious and envious I was. Hating others. Living hateful to God. What a wretched life. You know, these Christians that Titus was ministering to, they were living in a godless, evil culture. And Paul says to Titus, remind them how to behave in that culture. But before they feel any sense of superiority, brother Titus, help them remember that they themselves were part of it. As we look at evil and sin in the world around us, dear friends, we must never forget that we who are now in Christ were once a part of that sinful world. Verse 3, that was my life. That was your life. It doesn't matter if you grew up going to church or being a goody two-shoes. It doesn't matter if you generally considered yourself a moral or a religious person. So was Paul, the man writing these words. He was a very religious Pharisee, but he says we ourselves were once this. This is the condition of every human being apart from Christ. Even if you lived in a very outwardly religious way, the hidden sins of your hearts were always like bombs waiting to explode. Friends, everything that he says in verse 3, this was us. Apart from Christ, foolish, disobedient, led astray, enslaved to our passions and pleasures, walking in malice and envy, living a life hateful to God and others and hating each other. That was you. That was me. And what we deserved was the righteous judgment of a holy God, condemnation, death, eternal hell. That's where we were headed. And it's possible you're here this morning. And maybe you call yourself a Christian. But those words in verse 3, maybe those words actually describe your life right now. If you're here and you don't know Christ, my friend, this is your life. And it ends in destruction and ruin. But, oh, isn't that such a beautiful, hope-filled, amazing word? Look at verse 4. But, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon Flamed with light. We've seen in verse 3 what we were. Now we see in verses 4 to 6 what God did. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Who is the Savior? God. What did he do? He saved us. He saved us from that sinful, evil life. He saved us from his own wrath, from the judgment and destruction that we deserved. Why did he save us? Well, it's because of his own mercy. It's because his goodness, his loving kindness came. It's from his own goodness, from his own loving kindness, according to his own mercy. Not because of anything in us or some decision that we made or some good works that we did. No, none of us were more special than anybody else. He saved us according to his own mercy. Do you see? Paul clarifies that for us there. We're not saved by our works, not because of works done by us in righteousness. You know, I grew up in a city called Chennai, and uh, all through my life in Chennai, and those from Chennai will know what I'm talking about, I was very familiar, especially in the area that I stayed, of this very stinking odor that we would smell when we come out into the streets. You see, Chennai is home to one of the most polluted water bodies in the whole country of India. It's called the Coom River. And this Coom River has been polluted for over a hundred years. Uh, more than a hundred years back, someone referred to it as the Green and Beastly River. Current day Coom River is not green, it's still beastly, but it's black. And uh, it, is, it has zero dissolved, experiments have shown it has zero dissolved oxygen. Even if you dilute the water, fish will die within a couple of hours. Uh, it is filled with all manner of toxins and bacteria and uh, heavy metals such as lead and cadmium, pesticides, sewage. In fact, they've uh, ascertained that the water of the Coom is 80% more polluted than sewage. That's a picture of our lives apart from Christ. Toxic and polluted. Now imagine saying, you know, there have been uh, talks of cleaning up the Coom River for over a hundred years. All right, literally. They, they've, every, every new election you hear about this plan that they're making to clean up the Coom. Every time I visit Chennai, folks, it's the same as it always has been. Imagine you come up with a plan to clean up the Coom. I'm going to clean it up. I'm going to take a glass of fresh mineral water and pour it into the Coom River. And that's going to make it clean. That's what it's like for you to think that you can earn your salvation by your good works. It's like taking a few drops of water or a small glass of water and saying, here you go, this will clean up my life. Friends, those kind of attempts are doomed to result in catastrophic failure. No way. None of your deeds, none of our deeds, no self-help plan, no seven steps to self-improvement, no program, no attending church, no doing what you need to do, no pretending to be a religious Christian, no Bible reading plan, nothing that you can do 
None of your deeds could ever clean up the filthy sewage of your sin. There must be a divine action that comes from outside of you. Nothing less than a miracle. Our salvation must be from God. And it is all of God. God, our Savior. He saved us. He saved us. Out of his own goodness and loving kindness, according to his mercy. That's why he saves us. How does he save us? Did you see verses 5 and 6? He says, By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal. This is a complete cleansing. He takes us in our toxicity, drowning in the cesspool of our sin, and He cleans us. Just like Jesus cleansed the lepers, He cleanses us from our sin. He takes out the heart of stone. He puts in a heart of flesh. He makes us pure, holy, new. Do you see He speaks of regeneration there, regeneration and renewal? That's talking of the new birth of being born again. And guess what? You can't make yourself get born again. You can't make yourself get spiritually born born any more than you could make yourself get physically born. It's not like you were in your mother's womb and said, okay, now is the time. I'm making a decision. Out I come. No. It's God's work. It's His action. It's not even your faith that makes you be reborn. No, you believe because you have been reborn. It's wholly a work of divine saving grace. God speaks his word and where there was once darkness, there is now light. Just as Lazarus, Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave, when we are saved, God calls us into life and makes us new. You know, the word there for regeneration is a powerful, powerful word. It's speaking of God's new creation power. It's used in the New Testament to speak of God's power by which He will recreate all things. There will be a new heavens and new earth. And the same God who spoke in Genesis chapter 1 and said, Let there be light and created all things by His word. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God said, Let there be light. There was light. He spoke and He created all things. One day God will create a new heavens and a new earth. But that new creation has begun even now. In his people. He has exercised that power in saving you. In causing you to be born again. In renewing you. In cleansing you. And friends, it's it's not speaking there of baptism, alright? Some people get confused because of the word washing. They think, well, this must refer to baptism. Remember, we're not saved by anything that we do. Not by works done by us in righteousness. So it's not our decision to be baptized or our baptism that washes us, cleanses us, renews us, causes us to be born again. It's the invisible action of the living God. But baptism is a picture of this, isn't it? When we are baptized, we are symbolically depicting what God has done. We go down into the water, come up a new person, cleansed, belonging to the family of God. 
He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Friends, think of this, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Every believer in Christ has experienced this. In fact, you cannot be saved apart from the pouring out of His Holy Spirit upon you. Notice he's talking about salvation. God saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes we get confused about the Holy Spirit's person and work and what the Holy Spirit does. Having the Holy Spirit poured out upon us is not just some kind of emotional experience where you cry and your emotions go into frenzy. Yes, it is deeply emotional when we come to know God, when we experience His saving power. But it's not merely an emotional experience. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is not merely marked by the exhibition of some spiritual gifts. No, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is seen in a complete renewal of who you are and a transformation of your entire life where you are reborn, renewed, made new. God has given of Himself to us richly, lavishly to renew us, cleanse us, make us new. And then you see this beautiful picture of how the triune God saves us. He saved us. He poured out upon us the Holy Spirit richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And did you notice, Paul has done this multiple times, he calls God our Savior. And then here, he says, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus Christ is God. And here we see all three persons of the triune God whom we confessed at the beginning of this worship gathering. The triune God working to save us. God the Father choosing us. Sending His Son, God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, took on flesh, fully God, fully man, went to the cross, shed His blood, died for us as our Savior. God the Father and the Son sending forth the Holy Spirit who comes and applies the work of salvation to our hearts, causing us to be born again to a new and living hope as we hear the word of God, summoning us to repentance and faith. That's how He does it. Father, Son, and Spirit acting to save us from our sin. What is the result of this salvation? Notice verse 7. So that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's a crucial New Testament word, justified. It means that we are declared righteous by His grace. Right now, we are justified by God's grace. It gives the picture of a courtroom. And, and there you are standing in the courtroom before the divine judge of all the earth. And you know how guilty we are. That we should be condemned for our sin. But the divine judge looks upon us and declares us righteous. How can he do that without being unjust? How can the judge of all the earth look upon guilty sinners and say, righteous? Well, it's because of what He has done through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He became sin who knew no sin, 
so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ, our God, our Savior, was fully man. He became our representative. His perfectly obedient life, His righteousness is given to us as a gift when we believe by God's grace. And His perfect death is as a substitute for us. Our sins were counted to Him. It's what we call the doctrine of imputation. You should know this word, imputation. Our sins were counted to Christ and He died as our substitute. His perfect obedience, His righteousness is counted to us when we believe. God declares us righteous so that even now, brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what you've done, no matter how you fail, if your faith is in Jesus, God looks at you as being as obedient and righteous as His own Son. We are justified by His grace and we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It means we have a secure spiritual inheritance that is ours forever. You know, this uh, story is told, I don't know if it's a true story, but people tell the story of this old man who had uh, a priceless art collection of numerous pieces of art worth millions and millions and millions. And uh, he died, and he had a will, and they were going to execute this will, and uh, part of it was to hold an auction for all of his artwork. And so all of these people assembled, and they were auctioning off the, going to auction off the artwork, and, you know, there's so many people keen to purchase some of these amazing pieces of art. But before anything, the auctioneer brings, the, um, brings this portrait, which was a picture of the old man's son. And he says, this one is for free. Does anybody want it? And the whole room is silent. And nobody seemed interested. They said, come on, get to the main stuff. But then one lowly man got up and says, I'll take it. And he receives it. And then the auctioneer says, okay, auction over, everybody go home. And everybody's like, what? Where's the other art? Well, they said, well, the will says, the one who gets the son gets it all. We become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The one who gets the son gets it all. So my question for you this morning do you have the Son? Dear friend, if you're here and if you don't have Christ, if you haven't trusted in Him, if you haven't tasted the grace of God in your life, I'm speaking to the children, I'm speaking to all of you, if you don't know Jesus, come, receive His grace. Let Him wash and cleanse you. Let Him take you from verse 3. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, a slave to passion and pleasure, passing your days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Take him, let him take you from verse 3 today and bring you to verse 4. Renewed, cleansed, righteous in his sight, an heir of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Hear the voice of the Son of God calling you and come to him in faith. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then this is what God has done for us. We have been regenerated and renewed. We have been washed clean. The Holy Spirit of God has been poured out on us richly, giving us new life, enabling us to live for God. 
We've been declared righteous in the sight of the divine judge. Christ's own obedience and righteousness has been counted to us. We become heirs with the sure hope of eternal life. And that's why we live doing good works. When we've truly tasted and experienced God's grace, He transforms our lives from being a toxic cesspool, unfit for anything good, to being a flowing stream of righteous and good deeds that glorify His name. That's why it was so important for Pastor Titus to keep teaching the gospel and to keep guarding sound doctrine, especially the doctrine of God's grace. Because it's God's grace that saves us and it's God's grace that transforms us, purifies us, trains us to do good works. We're not saved by our good works. We are saved for good works. Did you see that in verse 8? Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you, Titus, brother pastor, to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we constantly seek to teach the things that are excellent and profitable. It's so that you, dear brothers and sisters, may be enabled to live a life worthy of the gospel so that you may be careful to devote yourself to good works. And make no mistake, this grace-based, life-transforming gospel is constantly under threat. Those who preach and teach it, pastors like Titus, are under threat. And one way that the gospel is attacked is by those who bring distractions and stir up division in the church. That leads to Paul's third and final responsibility for pastors. First, we are to remind the people how to behave. Second, we must recall how we were saved. And third, we must reject distractions and divisive persons. Reject distractions and divisive persons. See verses 9 to 11. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. We must avoid distractions. Uh, and these distractions come in the form of foolish controversies and quarrels, arguments that amount to nothing. By the way, I want you to notice, I want to clarify, Paul is not saying avoid all controversy. He's not saying avoid all argument. No, actually, if you read Paul's letters, you'll see that he had a lot of controversy refuting false teaching. If you look at the life of Jesus, you see that Jesus entered into argument with the Pharisees and the false teachers of the law. No, he's saying avoid foolish controversies. Uh, I like how one pastor, Kevin D. Young, puts it. We must avoid those discussions and debates and arguments that are, first of all, speculative where, you know, Scripture doesn't say something, but you want to talk about it and make a big deal out of things that Scripture is silent about. Avoid those things that are speculative. Avoid those arguments that are useless, that make no impact or have no bearing on how you live your life, on what you believe. Avoid those controversies that are endless, where people want to keep on arguing and arguing and debating about irrelevant matters. Don't waste your time on those things, Titus. Preach the gospel. 
pastor the people. Not only is he to reject distractions, but he must reject divisive persons. Did you see what it says in verse 10? Stay with me. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and twice, have nothing more to do with him. In, in the Greek text, this is very short, concise, punchy statement. It says, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. This means when someone is creating division in the church, attacking falsely and slandering the leadership of the church, gossiping, grumbling, you warn them once, you give them a second warning, and after that, the text where it says reject, it means speaking of excommunication, church discipline. That means they're excluded from coming to the Lord's Supper. And also it means that they have no permission. This particular category of church discipline, those people have no permission to even attend the gathering of the church. Warn them once, warning one. Warn them twice, warning number two. And then done. This is serious. And it's important. And it's necessary to protect church members, to defend church doctrine, to protect leaders and members from slander. Friends, I've been here a while, more than six years now, and I've seen this in our community. I remember a few years ago, there was a member of the church standing in the hallway giving out letters, slanderous letters against our previous senior pastor. And I'm thankful for our brother Luis who wrote to us and brought it to our attention. And our elders dealt with that case swiftly. It's absolutely necessary. You know, all of us have disagreements with leaders sometimes. All of us have dis disagreements maybe sometimes with what is preached. And it's okay to have disagreement, but you've got to express that disagreement in a healthy and godly way. If you have questions, if you have any concerns, come to the elders and talk to us. It's one thing to come and talk to a pastor and say, you know, I'm not very sure about what you said in that sermon. I'm, I'm not really persuaded. I, I'm di I disagree. It's another thing to gather together with a group of people and tell them what the pastor is preaching is wrong. And he's leading us astray and it's dangerous. Friends, that's division. Seeking to divide the church through grumbling, gossip, slander, Attacking what is being taught and preached is a very serious issue which requires serious and immediate action. And if we fail to act in this way, we fail to guard the gospel and we fail to protect the good works and godly living that must flow from the gospel. So friends, work together as a church to guard your pastors, to guard this church from division. If you hear someone gossiping, grumbling, please tell them, don't talk like that. Please bring it to the, notice the, the command is given to Titus as the pastor, bring it to the elders so that we can deal with that person. Don't just sweep it under the rug. Tell them, I'm going to take this to our elders. This is serious what you're doing. And help us pastor you. So we've seen three responsibilities there for pastors. We must remind you of how to behave. We must recall how we've been saved. And we must reject distractions and divisive persons. You know, if you look at the closing verses there of Titus, 
You'll see Paul talking about sending these gospel workers. He asks Titus to come and visit him. He says, I'm going to spend the winter here. And he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, to help cases of urgent need, to not be unfruitful. He sends greetings. He says, grace be with you all. And all of that, when we look at those greetings, sometimes our eyes can pass over it. But it's good for us to be reminded this was a real letter written to a real pastor facing the real challenges of pastoral ministry in a difficult place. And Titus is reminded of the ultimate goal of it all here, that the people of God, by God's gospel grace, would learn to devote themselves to good works. And ECC, that's my prayer and goal for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of grace that we've received in Christ. Because of what you've done for us, may we learn to be careful to devote ourselves to good works in every sphere of life and to guard unity in your church. In Jesus' name, amen.